What's the Lord's will for my life? That's a question which I'm sure most, if not all of us here, have asked at one time or another. Perhaps you first asked that question not long after your conversion. You saw your whole life, your Christian life, stretching out before you, and you wanted to make good use of it. And so you asked, well, what is the Lord's will for my life? Or you may have asked it again many years later during some kind of spiritual midlife crisis, when you began to wonder, what have you accomplished with a life that God redeemed from the pit? And you thought, I haven't got long left, perhaps. I want to make best use of the time I have. What's the Lord's will for my life? That's a good question to ask. Because our lives are not our own. They've been bought with a price. Our lives belong to the God who loved us and gave himself for us. He is our master and we are his servants. And we should indeed want to know what his will for our lives is. Indeed, Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 5.18 to understand what the will of the Lord is. And we should approach everything in life with the desire that his will, not ours, be done. Good question to ask. But I wonder what exactly we have in mind when we ask the question, what is the Lord's will for my life? Because we're probably thinking along the following lines. What job would the Lord have me to do? Who would the Lord have me to marry? Or in fact, would he have me to remain single? Where would the Lord have me to live? In which church would the Lord have me to serve? But a quick glance at those passages of Scripture, and there are many of them, which directly or indirectly address this issue of the Lord's will for our ransomed lives, reveals that those kind of questions are not the ones that biblical writers are answering. Rather, for them, discovering what the Lord's will is, is all about what kind of people the Lord would have us be at heart. It's all about the character traits which should be evident in the life of the Christian, no matter what job they're doing, no matter who they've married or not married, no matter where they live, no matter what local church they're part of. It's not so much what we do, but who we are at heart that is the issue when it comes to what is the Lord's will for us. In Romans 8, Paul says that God's purpose for us, the goal of our redemption, what the whole thing is about, is that we be conformed to the image of his Son. God has saved us so that we might be like Jesus at heart. That's God's will for you, for me, for every one of his children in a nutshell. That we be like Jesus at heart. We are not by nature. And he has saved us and filled us with his spirit so we may become like that. So we may become like him. 
when we're at work, when we're at home, when we're in the supermarket, when we're in hospital, when we're with our brothers and sisters in Christ on an occasion like this, God's will is that our hearts resemble those of our Saviour. Look at the verses uh, I read just a moment ago from 1 Thessalonians 5. And from verse 14 down to verse 22, Paul lists a series of qualities which a disciple of Jesus should be manifesting. Patience selflessness, compassion, etc. And in verse 18, we have these words, which are the hinge on which everything else in those verses turns. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So it's no great mystery. We don't have to spend time in a darkened room, alone with God, in a mystic trance, trying to discover and discern what the will of the Lord is in that general sense for our life. It's set out clearly for us in Scripture. Paul says, in a sense, in verse 18, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You are now in Christ. And this is what God requires of those he has placed in Christ, that you be like Christ. And he gives us a snapshot of what it means to be like Christ in these verses. And over the course of the next uh, few weeks, I want to look with you, God willing, at three things found in verses 16 to 18, which are clearly part of God's will for all his ransomed people. We may be very different to one another here this evening. We may have nothing in common with one another other than a like precious faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So different in many ways. Different marital statuses, different forms of employment or not in employment. Different roles and gifts within the church. But whoever you are, whoever I am, this is God's will for us. And here we have it in verses 16 to 18. His will for us, his will for you uh, in Bethel Clidach is that we be a joyful people, a prayerful people, and a thankful people. That's what God purposes for us and requires of us. That was his will for you last year. It's his will for you this year. And it would remain his will for you ad infinitum, that you be joyful, prayerful, thankful in every aspect of your life. Jesus was joyful. Jesus was prayerful, and Jesus was thankful, and God would have us to share the mind of Christ in these things as in everything. So before we come to prayer this evening, let's think about the first of those three things uh, I just flagged up for you. Paul says, rejoice always, verse 16. For verse 18, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, verse 16 is the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament. You've probably uh, thought for a long time that Jesus wept in John 11 is the shortest verse. But in the original Greek, um, that I believe has 16 letters in the Greek. This one here I'm looking at has 14. The shortest verse in the Greek New Testament. 
but don't let that fool you into thinking it's a verse we can just skip over. Because as I want to show you, it's a verse which gives us tremendous help as we grapple with the harsh reality of life in a fallen world. It's a wonderfully pastorally helpful verse. Rejoice always. Now in Galatians 5, Paul states that joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. That is to say, it's a quality which the Holy Spirit produces in the hearts of those he indwells. So it's something, this joy, which can only be experienced by the followers of Jesus, because only they have the Spirit. But then we stop and ask a question, because we say, hang on, surely there's a sense in which even the most ardent atheist can experience a measure of joy in this life. Joy at the birth of a child. Joy at a family wedding. Joy when his rugby team wins a prestigious trophy. It's not a joy I've known much of lately, being a supporter of Cardiff City. I don't know if I should... Uh, confess that in a, a gathering like this, but I certainly have known much joy, but you may be a, a Swansea, have known much joy either, but Manchester City or um, a team like that, Italy winning the Euros in the summer, may know something of this joy. So how can Paul then say that joy is something supernatural, something produced exclusively by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of God's people, when we see unbelievers all around us with a measure of joy in their hearts. Well, here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, Paul clears up any confusion we might have about this matter when he says that God's will for his people is not simply that they rejoice, but they rejoice always that their joy be something that doesn't ebb and flow, rise and fall, but rather something that is constant. And what Paul is referring to here is a different kind of joy altogether to that which the unbeliever can ever know in his heart. Because here's the key. It's a joy which can be experienced even by those who are suffering. Paul is saying that the joy of the Christian is a joy which not even pain and sorrow can extinguish. It's a joy that Jesus said cannot be taken from us. And it's God's will that we know that joy, and it's God's will that we manifest that joy, even in the crucible of affliction. So in the verse which we have here before us, Paul is saying that God's will for us is that we rejoice even as we suffer. Is that even possible? Well, Paul says it is. The believers to whom this letter were written were familiar with suffering. The very birth of the church was covered in suffering, great opposition and persecution, so that Paul had to leave for a while. Uh, sorry, had to leave shortly after the planting of the church. And yet with these Christians, in suffering, he exhorts them to rejoice. And he says, I 
later in a second letter to the church at Corinth, he testifies that he has experienced this kind of joy, this joy whilst we suffer firsthand. Because he reports in that second letter to the Corinthians that he and Timothy, in the course of their ministry, have experienced tribulations, needs, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labours, sleeplessness, and fastings. We've been through the mill, he says, and he says this has left us sorrowful, the honesty of Paul. He doesn't pretend it's all okay. Pack up your troubles and old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. None of this touches me. He said this has left us sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That sounds like a total oxymoron. Two things put together which don't just don't seem to fit together. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And yet Paul says, that's my experience. I sorrow, and yet at one and the same time, I rejoice. And Jesus himself knew this kind of joy, didn't he? He was without doubt, as had been prophesied, a man of suffering. So it was part almost of his identity. Could we almost say, Reverend, he was part of his DNA, suffering, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, as the NIV translates Isaiah 53:3. And yet he speaks to his disciples about my joy, which I want to be in you. This joy known even in pain. So God wants us to rejoice even whilst we suffer. And it's possible for us to rejoice even whilst we suffer. There are examples of it in the scriptures. But how? How can we rejoice whilst we are suffering? Well, Paul gives us the answer to that question, to how we can rejoice always. But not here, actually, in 1 Thessalonians 5.16 but in his letter to the Philippians. Because in chapter 4, he acknowledges they are facing situations which could make them anxious, so he exhorts them not to be anxious. In other words, there are situations which naturally would make them anxious. And yet even in that context, he exhorts them to rejoice always, just like he had here to the Thessalonians. But of course, when writing to the Philippians, if you know that passage, you may well do, Chapter 4 and verse 4, he adds three words in English which make all the difference. Namely, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul doesn't expect us to find some masochistic pleasure in the heartache we are experiencing. And the scriptures are wonderfully transparent and authentic about the reality of life in this age, in a world groaning under the curse. The Bible is wonderfully realistic that it is a place of pain, sorrow, heartache, and tribulation, and that the Christian is not exempt from these things. He faces them, and he feels them. And yet whilst being wonderfully upfront and realistic about the reality of life in this world, the scripture also says, and yet you can know 
a strange, remarkable, undeniable joy as you rejoice in the Lord. So we don't have a masochistic pleasure in our experiences, but our joy is to be independent of our situations. That's the the crux, isn't it? Our joy is to be independent of our situations and therefore ultimately unaffected by them. Paul says we rejoice in the Lord. So our joy is to be rooted in our knowledge of God, our relationship with God, and in our experience of the blessings of God which come to us through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just unpack those two things uh, a little for you. Firstly, our joy, this joy that can be known even in pain, is to be rooted in our knowledge of God. It comes out of our relationship with God, our interaction with God. Delight yourself in the Lord, says the psalmist. Delight yourself in him. In other words, meditate on him, think about him, fix your eyes on him, fill your minds with him, contemplate him, his glory, his majesty, his beauty, his splendor that he's uh, revealed to us here in these scriptures. And as we do so, as we think on him and we really fix our eyes upon him, we find that our spirit begins to soar. Have you ever found that when you're under good preaching and God is being held up for you to see? And in a sense, the sermon is, behold your God. And you see all the facets of his majestic character, his love and his holiness and his grace and his mercy and his faithfulness and his kindness and his beautiful gentleness. And you're thinking on these things, and you can almost see it happening with me. As you think on these things, you find that your spirit begins to soar. And you rise up on wings like eagles. Because God is just so marvelous and delightful. Thoughts of God fill the healthy Christian with joy. When there was there a time when you feared God with this terror of condemnation, And the very name or word God sends shivers down your spine. And then the Spirit comes into our life. And this austere, foreboding God suddenly becomes a loving Heavenly Father to us. A shepherd. The one who loved us in that he sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we should not perish, but believe in him and have everlasting life. And now God is delightful to us. God is attractive. God is altogether desirable. And when we think of him, our heart fills with joy. Says Tim Shenton, the great composer Joseph Haydn was once asked, why is church music was so cheerful? He replied, when I think upon God, my heart is so full of joy that the notes dance and leap, as it were, from my pen. I wonder, is that our experience of interaction with God? That just to to think of him, to listen to him, is delightful and fills us with joy. Is that the root of your joy? Do you have that joy in the Lord tonight? 
And secondly, our joy is to be found in our experience of the blessings which this beautiful God has lavished upon us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. David said, here it is in one of the Psalms, My soul shall be joyful in the Lord, it shall rejoice in his salvation. Think of this salvation that he's given us, these blessings. Our sins have been forgiven. If ever you felt the weight of sin, if ever you felt the guilt and the wretchedness of sin, then to know that those sins are forgiven, washed away, and removed from us as far as the east is from the west is the most marvellous thing imaginable and cannot but make us leap for joy. We've been clothed in Christ's righteousness so that we are blameless in the sight of the holy God. We've been adopted into God's family and we have his gentle, tender care. We can bring anything to him in prayer, as we will be doing now. We have a shepherd who cares for us. We're going to reign with Christ forever in a new heavens and a new earth, unspoiled by sin, where only righteousness dwells. Now, you go home and think on those. Or do it now, actually, because hopefully it'll fill your heart with joy as you come to prayer. Because when we meditate on these blessings that are ours in him, when we think of how rich we are in Christ, I challenge you, boy, your heart must be in a moribund, cold state. If when we think on these things, we are not moved in the depths of our being, we are not thrilled, and we are not set ablaze with joy in our hearts. Do we know anything of what David called the joy of God's salvation? That's the root and foundation of the Christian's joy, his contemplation of this delightful God. I wonder, do we ever think of him in those terms? I remember uh, one time being in a, a prayer meeting and somebody simply said, Lord, you are a beautiful God. And I thought that's a very simple thing to say, But it really struck me, and as you can see, I haven't forgotten it. You are a beautiful God, a delightful God. And is our joy rooted and grounded in the salvation we have? Do we contemplate, or is it salvation just a word? I've been saved. Jesus brought me salvation. Oh, what a magnificent thing. Think of all the things that are part of it. This is where our joy comes from. And if our joy is grounded, not in the fact that we're healthy, not in the fact that everything is going well in work, not in the fact that our football team or rugby team are doing well, not in the fact that everything is fine in the church and there are no problems, but if our joy is grounded apart from all that, irrespective of our circumstances, in God, in the person of God and in the blessings of God, then we'll always have cause to rejoice because God is always delightful and we always have his salvation. Not even the most intense suffering touches the beauty of God and the reality of our salvation. And so the question for us tonight, and for me as much as you, is this. If we are not rejoicing always in the Lord... Is it because we allow our suffering, we don't deny the reality of that, as I'm going to mention before we finish, 
But is it because we allow our suffering to obscure the person of God and the blessings of God? Because isn't it so often the case, and I speak from my own situation, that when we experience suffering of one kind or another, that's all we can think about. It dominates our mind, the suffering, the pain, the sorrow, the anguish, so that everything else is forgotten about. And when that happens, our joy disappears. And so when Paul instructs the Thessalonians, rejoice always, what he is doing is not saying, now come on, turn that frown upside down, put on a plastic smile. What he's saying is this, in the midst of your suffering, which I don't deny, and I paraphrase him, of course, here, greatly, sit down and deliberately and purposefully think. Think upon God. Think of who he is. Think of his character. Think of his beauty. Think of all the benefits with which he daily loads you. And that is the key to being able to rejoice even whilst suffering. And it's why when we're suffering, what we need is someone to come and weep with us. We need someone to come and uphold us in prayer. But we need someone to come and tell us who our God is and the salvation our God has purchased for us. So that whilst the suffering doesn't disappear, and this is the point, the joy that comes from thinking upon God and his salvation doesn't make the pain of suffering disappear. The situation remains and we feel the pain of it and that pain can be acute. But that's not all we have. There's joy as well as sorrow. And there's light as well as darkness. Because it's just not true that we can only experience joy if we don't have any sorrow. That's the way the world thinks, isn't it? As soon as there's sorrow, all joy is gone. But the Bible says that Christian life is a strange mixture of both. At one and the same time, there's sorrow and joy. And a day is coming when there will be no sorrow, but only joy. What are we thinking upon? Where are we fixing our eyes and our minds? The extent to which we can know this joy in the midst of sorrow, so we always rejoice, is to some degree at least dependent upon us then. Because the Spirit plants this joy in our heart, it's joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, but he uses means to stir that joy up. And it's our conscious dwelling upon who God is and what God has given us in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's practical here. It is wonderfully practical. We sit down and we take some time. Perhaps we could even list if we work that way or on a computer or whatever, just list the things about God that we find so delightful and all the blessings that are ours, list them when you go home and then call them up again day after day after day. And in the sorrow, even while you weep, there's that stirring of joy in the heart when we rejoice in the Lord. Can I quickly say then there are three obstacles 
to knowing this joy even in the midst of suffering. There are three reasons why we may not rejoice always only when things are well. Firstly, as I said, that when suffering comes, we have the temptation to dwell upon it until we wallow in self-pity. How do we clear that obstacle? By turning our eyes upwards, rejoicing in the Lord. The other obstacle is that we think only of ourselves. Suffering can do that, can't it? It can turn us in upon ourselves so that we only ever think about ourselves and our situation. But in 1 Thessalonians 3, you look at it for yourself when you go home in verses 7 to 9. Paul talks about, well, I'll read it here now. Paul says, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For what thanks can we render to God for you? for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. So Paul says we're in affliction and distress, Timothy and I, but when we think of you and how you were growing in the Lord and being blessed by the Lord, that rejoices us. You see, Paul wasn't fixed on himself. Paul took delight in other people and in their joys and experiences. And if we take delight in others, and their growth in the Lord, then even in suffering, our own suffering, there is cause for rejoicing when we look outwards. So we look upwards, we look outwards, and then we look forwards as well, because the other problem with suffering is we can't think beyond the present. <laughs> we anchor ourselves, don't we, in the here and now, and the here and now can be pretty bleak. But when we think of what's to come, when we look beyond where we are, we find our hearts filling with joy. And Peter speaks about that, having told the Christians, reminding them of an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So the uh, people to whom Peter is writing are suffering. They're grieved by various trials. But he said, you greatly rejoice in what? In, for one thing, an anticipation of a great inheritance that is ahead of them. So in suffering, we need to look upwards to God and all we have in him. We need to look outwards and remember that life isn't just about us. And then we need to look forwards and remember that a greater day is coming. Instead of inwards, we go up, out, and forward. And through this, we are helped. That while the anguish of the trial remains with us, there is hope in Christ. Something we have to discipline ourselves to do, isn't it? Because interestingly, Paul, in the sixth verse of chapter one of this letter, says that the Philippians received the word in affliction, with much joy. So at their conversion, boy, they were persecuted. Boy, there was trouble for the gospel. But they rejoiced as well. So they felt the pain of the persecution, but when they thought of what they were having in Christ, they rejoiced. So they had experienced this. They knew what Paul was talking about. They had rejoiced in a time of trouble. So why does Paul have to speak to them again about it? Well, just because we do it once doesn't mean we keep doing it. And it's a discipline, isn't it? A daily discipline to focus on the Lord, 
and our salvation in him and through that to find joy in times of trouble wonderfully practical and pastoral we acknowledge the suffering but we don't drown under it and paul says the spirit empowers us in this planting that joy in our heart but he says we through practical means stir it up by meditating upon god and his salvation just finish with this before you come to any gathering of the local church do you prepare your heart for worship or do you just sort of try and turn the joy on when you come which is even more difficult when you've got a difficult experience at home why not take some time before you come perhaps that list you've written or i may not want to actually write a list but you've got the ideas in your head before you come think on god this delightful god remind yourself of his blessings warm yourself up if i can put it in that way bring your joy with you don't wait to turn it on when you come through the door bring it with you so that when you come you can say to one another let us rejoice in our savior the gospel is good news of great joy for all the people may our communities see it see that good news of great joy for them fleshed out in us as we rejoice always knowing it is the will of god in christ jesus for us